0: Well, Numbers chapter 23 is where we continue our study through the book of Numbers this evening. We last time began looking at this situation where the king of Moab, a man named Balak, recognizing that the children of Israel had defeated Some uh, pretty substantial uh, surrounding people groups around him and seem to have somewhat military momentum. Again, remember after almost 40 year span of wandering in the wilderness, the children of Israel have now come to the edge of the promised land. They're back on the border and they are really in a sense right on the edge of what God has intended for them. He's about to bring them now into the land of promise that he intends for them. And of course, as is often the case when we are right on the edge of what God intends for us, God's blessing, God's best, the ideal of what God wants to bring us into, so often with that there comes the counter-resistance of the enemy, there comes opposition. And, And so, of course, we see that happening in the forms of military conflict. And now here in chapters 22 through 25, we see that happening in a sense As another effort to try and sabotage God's purposes and plans for the children of Israel as King Balak now wanting to curse the children of Israel sends from afar a few hundred miles away to hire out this man Balaam this enigma that we find in the scriptures mentioned many times always in a negative light again the New Testament giving commentary on him speaks of the way of Balaam the error of Balaam the doctrine of Balaam and when the scriptures refer to Balaam they always point to him uh, as a really bad guy a bad example someone who we don't want to follow a man who was greedy who was interested in really though he does receive prophecy and speak forth on behalf of God he's not a believer he's he's a false prophet in many ways Joshua 13 I believe it's chapter 13 tells us that that he was a a soothsayer and someone who was involved in divination actually so he was someone who was in touch with with the spirit realm and many times seemed uh, to be hired out as sort of a mercenary of uh, different people to basically speak forth oracles or uh, curses uh, or blessings upon people and he would channel the spirits of different deities and so now Balak knowing of this famous renowned uh, sort of uh, soothsayer and diviner Balaam sends forth messengers to call him to come and curse the children of israel because he believes if he can get them to be cursed then he can defeat them militarily and they won't conquer his territory so word goes to balaam we saw last time and god very clearly speaks to balaam breaks into his life and tells him do not go and do not curse my people God very clearly tells him, the answer is no, don't go, don't curse the people. When word of that comes back to Balak, and they hear, hey, he said that he won't come, that he can't come. Uh, King Balak then raises the ante, he sort of increases uh, the offer, his honorarium, and says, look, well, how about if we, and and further persuasion, more honorable messengers, greater dignitaries, more pomp and circumstance to feed into his ego, And, and Balaam starts to then negotiate, thinking, well, maybe Maybe if I check with God again, I can re-persuade him. And he begins to move away from the the perfect and and clear will of God. And he begins ultimately to find ways to try and uh, ultimately still do what he intends to do, which is he's interested in the money. He's full of greed. Uh, And he wants to receive the resources of this king that was being offered to him. And ultimately, though God tries in many ways, even ultimately we saw by using a donkey to try and hinder and, and, and really cause, if you would, car problems, travel difficulties, everything he could, even speaking through the mouth, remember of the donkey to try and persuade him not to go balaam uh, still presses forward presses forward and ultimately meets up with balak who's rather upset that he took so long to get there but is more than anxious to now get him in this process to curse the children of israel now with that backdrop in mind last time in chapter 23 we went down as far as verse 6 as they were preparing to try and pronounce for the first time this curse over the children of Israel. Now, though we looked at verses 1 through 6, let me just read them for sake of just refreshing and picking up a context or running start with where we're going this evening. It says, Balaam then said to Balak, to the king, build seven altars for me here. Prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak, the king, did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Again, keep in mind these aren't Levitical sacrifices. Uh, There were others who did animal sacrifices and so forth. This is another way of uh, divining in that day. Sometimes, as I said, they look at the the entrails of animals and try and read omens in them and so forth. And again, so uh, this is not Levitical sacrifice. This is them just thinking they're currying the favor, of the God of the children of Israel. He may be probably like any other God. We have to give some offerings and sacrifices. And and so they're trying to curry his favor now, like a, a cosmic genie of sorts. So verse three, Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I'll go. Perhaps the Lord, Yahweh, their God, again, he refers to him as the Lord. He knows who Israel's God is, though he doesn't know Israel's God personally. He knows about him. Perhaps he'll come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height and God met Balaam and said to him, I've prepared the seven altars and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and the princes of Moab. So uh, they go through this process now, and God now speaks forth and puts, it says, a word. We're going to read an oracle, which is a term for a prophetic message, a, a word from God, into the mouth of this really false prophet, if you would, this diviner, this man who does not in any way seem to be, a genuine believer in Yahweh God, but yet, in the same way God can speak through a donkey... God can speak through anyone. God can speak through a pagan if he so chooses to. And I think if we were all honest in our lives, <laughs> there has been a time or two in my life when the voice of the Lord, uh, maybe to reprove me or to challenge you or to say something uh, sort of as indirectly, though they may not even realize, it come directly through maybe the most least likely person. And somebody says something, you're like, ouch, you know, and, 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 and here's the, probably the most least likely individual. And yet they say something and you sense that God's kind of, You know, putting forth the word. So again, keep in mind, uh, this isn't because God favors or looks favorably upon Balaam. This whole situation is motivated by greed and and avarice and all kinds of unhealthy things. But yet God, the Bible says, can use even the wrath of men to praise him. Uh, So God can even use the evil that happens in our world to still ultimately, as we'll see, orchestrate and, and contribute to his ultimate plans and purposes. So God now does, though he told Balaam not to go, and though he pushed forward still anyway against God's perfect will, God permits him to still go, and he does now put a word into his mouth. They're looking for the grand, wonderful curse. Curse these people, weaken them for me. So he now says, this is what Yahweh God has told me to speak. Verse 7, King Balak. He took up his oracle and he said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me From Aram, from the mountains of the east, so from the Euphrates River area, uh, that fertile crescent uh, there, that territory, God makes evident that he knew exactly from the start what was going on. God right away says, make sure you indicate to that king that I know everything that he's done and that he's been up to. He may not follow me, but I'm fully aware of all of his activities. I know that he hired you, that he sought you from afar, paid you these, you know, offered these large sums of money. Come, and God says, he knows what you want me to do. Come, curse Jacob, which is a reference to Israel. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. Verse 8, the oracle continues, and here's where the shock factor starts. He then says, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not has not denounced from the top of the rocks. I see him. And from the hills, I behold him there a people dwelling alone. The idea there is alone, separate or distinct. There are people who've been set apart. The Israelites for God, not reckoning itself among the nations, not dwelling and living as other nations do, but living distinct and set apart for God. Verse 10, who can count? He says the dust of Jacob, were number one-fourth of Israel. So as he looks upon them, he sees, and this gives you the idea of the vastness of the population of the nation of Israel at this point as God had blessed them and multiplied them. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one fourth, that is one quarter of Israel. The idea is saying as he looked upon them, even again, remember they were set in sort of four quadrants, North and South and East and West. And as he looks at just one fourth, one quadrant, he's I can't even count the number there of just one fourth, one twenty-five 25% of the population. As he looked down upon them, they were so vast in their numbers. Now, interesting verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob, uh, Genesis chapter 13, God speaking to Abraham said to him, I will make your descendants as numerous as what? The dust of the earth. So here, God brings forth this message and indicates the reason why. They have been so prolific. Why they have expanded so much is because they're God's covenant people. And God promised all the way back to their founding father Abraham that he would multiply them to make them like the dust of the earth if it could even be counted somehow, which is an impossibility. So it's a sort of an analogy or metaphor of, of a massive amount of people that are innumerable. And here God speaks again of this blessing, this covenant blessing from all the way back to the time of Abraham. And then he then says in the midst of this, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. So as Balak's expecting a curse to come upon them, the very first oracle out of the mouth of Balaam is not a curse, but God brings forth a blessing. God brings forth a blessing in such a way where he says directly, verse 8 there, look at it, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? So he says, look, God hasn't cursed these people. And this now becomes the first of four oracles and the first of four blessings that are pronounced in the place of curses that were being sought. And this first blessing here in verse 7 through 10 speaks of God's protection and God's preservation over them. Though King Balak wanted to curse them, he wanted to militarily weaken them and defeat them, God says, look, that's not possible because they're my chosen people. My covenant has been with them since the time of Abraham. I prospered them even through the tragedies of Egypt. I preserved them. I protected them through every military conflict thus far. I have kept them and preserved them and no one has been able to, to harm them in any way. And God says here to, to Balaam, look, you can't curse those whom I've blessed. The blessing of God's Preservation and protection was upon them because they were God's chosen covenant people, and nothing was going to thwart that. And I love this reality here of how God brings forth, look, you can't curse my people. No power, no spiritual force, no influence, no authority, nothing is able to curse or to harm the people of God when God's hand and God's blessing of preservation and protection is upon them. That, that's incredibly encouraging. In fact, we read times in Scripture, Nehemiah is one of the places where it says there that, that God turns the curse into a blessing. And here's a fitting example of God doing that historically. He says, look, I, I can't curse them because God hasn't cursed them. The idea is God's blessed them. He's given his covenant to them. They've been like the dust of the earth and, and, and as Balaam is saying this. Notice he is so enthralled as the Spirit of God is moving him to say these words. He then says this interesting statement at the end of verse 10 Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. The idea is something in his heart makes him realize they are so blessed by God, and his covenant and mercy is with them in such a way that he's going to preserve them to the end. He's, he he almost there's a longing that comes forth here to want to be among And a part of the nation, though he was not. He says, let me, I wish I could have their lot in life, he's trying to say. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like the righteous. Let my end be like theirs. Isn't it true, if you kind of just think about it, how it seems like that everybody wants to die the death of the righteous, Everybody wants to end life like the righteous. Everybody wants to die like the righteous. The problem is, is a lot of people don't want to live like the righteous. They just want to die like the righteous. You know, I just want everything to be okay when I die. I want to live however I want. You know, I I, I don't want any responsibility. I don't want any accountability. I want to live as unrighteous, wild, unrestrained, no accountability, however I want. But then when I die, I want to die the death of the righteous, So if you could maybe just bring somebody in and have them wave something or say something over to me and bless me at the very end so I can die the death of the righteous. Listen, you don't get to die the death of the righteous unless you live the life of the righteous, unless you're in right relationship with God. And here, interesting, this pagan man, Balaam, he realizes, you know, their end is going to be good. And you know why Ungodly and even pagan people want to die the death of the righteous is because they look at your life as a righteous person and they realize that the end of that is good. That the end of that is going to be something wonderful. That there's something distinct and something different. And there's a genuine envy of that that they realize where your lot in life as a righteous person is going to ultimately unfold. And so just an interesting thing here is he's pronouncing this first blessing, that that would be a part of what he says in this longing to be a part of this covenant blessing that was upon the people of Israel. Well, when this blessing comes forth from Balaam, which Balak had hired him to what? Curse the people. He had offered him a great amount of money to curse his enemies well when balak heard this he said to balaam what have you done to me i took you to curse my enemies and look you've blessed them bountifully so he answered and said must i not take heed and speak what the lord what yahweh has put in my mouth again he's saying he's acknowledging look i i just said what he put in my mouth like i couldn't make it up it it's not like other situations when i could make up the oracle, which he probably did many times, <laughs> but this time he realized that God's, in a sense, you know, uh, overruled and spoke forth in a way that he had perhaps no control over. Then Balak said to him, well, well, "Okay, let's let's just forget that. Maybe that was just that was just bad luck at the start. So he says, you know, hey, if you don't succeed, try, try, try again. That's what he's going to do four times here. So he says, all right, let's just forget that, please. He says." Come with me to another place from which you may see them. Maybe this is the wrong angle. Maybe if you just look at it from a little different perspective, he says, you shall only see the outer part of them. Maybe that's the problem. You're seeing too much of them. And maybe that's distracting you or overwhelming you mentally. So he says, I just see the outer part of them and you shall not see them all and curse them there for me. So he says, maybe you just need a different vantage point. Maybe, you know, uh, we just look at this from a different perspective, then we can somehow subvert and change the, the, the plan of God. And you know, isn't that somewhat of a, a tragic, almost foreshadowing of what a lot of people do today still? They just say, well, well, you know, it all depends on how you look at things. What's right is right, but maybe if you go to a different vantage point, if you look at it from a little different angle, then maybe it's different then. Well, I mean, if you look at it this way, yeah, but, but maybe if we look at it from a different angle, God will change his no to a yes. And maybe God, if we look at things a little differently, we can somehow still get what we want rather than what God's intended will is in a situation. So he brought him, it says, to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and we'll see that's the place where uh, ultimately leadership is transferred from Moses to Joshua, Pisgah. And they built seven altars back to the same practice again, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. Let's go try this again, he says. And then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to them and there he was again, standing by his burnt offering. Princes of Moab were with him and Balak said to him, what has Yahweh spoken? And you almost wonder if maybe, again, in his enthusiasm, this twisted king, he said, OK, okay now what's he said? He, maybe the different vantage point. OK, there's, this is going to be a curse this time, right? What's he spoken? Tell me what he said. And he's got himself all worked up again. And then he took up now his second oracle. Again, that's a word that speaks of a prophetic word from God. He took up his second oracle. And we'll see now this second oracle prophecy or oracle of the Lord from verse 18 down through verse 24 speaks of God's commitment to bless and to remain faithful to Israel so the first oracle instead of a curse speaks of God's protection and God's preservation that they can't be cursed because God will preserve and protect them from anything harmful that would curse their lives the second oracle now speaks of God's commitment to his people his commitment to bless them and remain faithful to them no matter what happens, their own failures or any efforts of anyone else to come against them. Verse three, he took up the oracle, excuse verse eighteen, said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, listen to me, son of Zippur. Verse 19, great statement. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Your transition may say, there change his mind and that's the idea that's what repentance is repentance means to have a change of mind that leads then to a change of behavior or a change of direction so he says god is not like men god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind about something once it's been determined has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not make it good Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and look at that, I cannot reverse it. So, I mean, the, the, here's great theology there, verse nineteen. I mean, you want to talk about a uh, again word in the Scripture that speaks of what we often call the immutability of God. You know, the immutability of God is basically a term that speaks of the fact that God does not change malachi says you know i the lord god changeth not god never changes who he has been is always who he is and who he will always be in his character in his nature what god speaks of as truth will never change god's nature his temperament the idea is that god's not fickle god doesn't have off days like we do Uh, You know, God does not fluctuate where one day you're going to get this and the next day because maybe he's in a different mood or temperament or you've pushed the limit too far. All of a sudden he's going to respond a little different or he's going to act different in that situation. And again, I don't know about you, but I greatly appreciate that. One of the things that I love about my God more than anything, honestly, is his stability. The fact that he never changes because I can't always claim that. And and, and as I live among you and among other people, I realize that people aren't always like that, that people change. Sometimes people change uh, because of reasons of putting the knife in your back or betrayal or hurtful things that happen. And quite honestly, sometimes people change and there's not even anything wrong in the reason why, but just they change and they choose a different course or they go a different direction. All of a sudden, some promise doesn't matter to them anymore. And all of a sudden, something that they said, all of a sudden, now it's completely different. And he says, look, the idea is comparative there. God is not a man. Don't ever liken God to a man. Don't ever make the mistake that just because people have lied to you, it means that God will lie to you. And that's hard because a lot of times we experience things in life, and then what do we do? We transfer our experiences with people over to God. And that's a common temptation and a weakness in our flesh that we all have to try and overcome. Listen, maybe you had parents who said things and promised things and they lied and they never fulfilled them. Don't transfer that over to your heavenly father. God is not a man. The Bible doesn't just say that God won't lie. The Bible says in in the New Testament, God cannot lie. He couldn't even lie if he wanted to. It's against his very capability in his nature of honesty and integrity. So unlike men who do lie who do say things and promise things and don't fulfill them. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Again, the the idea here is uh, Balak is thinking somehow, well, maybe if we just push hard enough or we we press enough, we can get God to change his mind. and, And okay, then he'll reverse and he'll curse his people and he'll come against his people. Maybe if we just push God enough, we give him enough of these offerings, we bribe God enough, we can ultimately get God to do what we want hey, how many offerings is it going to take? We'll do seven altars a day, seven days in a row. If that's what it takes to eventually buy God off, we'll buy God off. And see, where do people get that mentality? Because that's how human beings are. People say, oh, I won't do something. Well, And then all of a sudden you push and you pressure. And it's amazing how sometimes what people say they won't do, if all of a sudden there becomes benefit or opportunity or enough persuasion or enough pressure that sometimes what happens, then people change their conviction or they change their belief or they make concessions or they compromise and with enough pressure and enough personal reasons, people will change and do the exact opposite and they'll reverse. They'll reverse. They'll make concessions on their convictions. They'll abandon their marriage commitments. They'll walk away from you know, responsibilities and things they've promised and done. And, and, and again, that's hurtful and that's hard. But listen, don't ever think that you have to worry about that with God. God will never do that. God cannot do that. God is the one stable thing. And you know what? I deeply appreciate that because that gives a sense of security, doesn't it? That you can have a sense that, look, I don't have to trust you. I don't mean that in a rude way, but but I I don't have to fully rely upon the fact that all my eggs are in, that you are never going to lie and that you'll never change your mind and that you're never going to reverse And become something that you're not now or change into something different because I have a God that will not lie, cannot lie, won't ever change his attitude or heart towards me, his love, his commitment, his faithfulness, his blessing upon your life. That is constant. It will never change. That is rock solid and something that gives great security. So he's saying, look, I've received a command to bless. They're blessed. He said, I don't know what you want me to do. God has commanded that they are blessed. He has blessed, and he says, I can't reverse God's blessing. That to me is really wonderful as well because it does not matter what people try and do. They come against you, your enemies, those who try and do you wrong. Look, if God's blessing is on your life as a child, it does not matter what anybody tries to do. Nobody's going to thwart God's blessing from your life. Nobody's going to bring a curse upon you that somehow is going to override God's blessing. You're blessed if you're a child of God because you're God's child and his covenant and his love and his faithfulness is with you. His commitment to remain faithful. I just love the wording. I've received the command to bless God's blessed and I can't reverse it. He says nothing we can do. They're blessed. And how wonderful to realize that for our very lives, even as God spoke this over the nation of Israel because of his covenant. We have a covenant with God in Christ, a covenant through Jesus that we have great blessing as well in that relationship we have with Christ. Look at verse 21. It says, he has not, he goes on to say, observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them, and God brings them out of Egypt, and He has strength like a wild ox. Now, verse twenty-one is almost somewhat staggering the way it reads. God has not observed iniquity in Jacob or seen wickedness in Israel. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What have we been studying? I mean, their history has been a whole lot of what idolatry and complaining and rebellion, and and I mean, we look at that and we think, wow, that's. Certainly they've sinned, so certainly it doesn't mean there, you know, please don't misinterpret that that's trying to say that God has just overlooked their sin, he's ignored it, that he doesn't hold people accountable for sin, because we know that's not scripturally true, that's not circumstantially true, they just watched a whole generation die, right, as a result of the consequences. Of their sins remember the whole uh, bronze serpent thing and I, I mean so this doesn't mean here that god's just overlooked sin and that he ignores it rather it's indicating that because of god's covenant and love their sin as bad as it does get and it got pretty bad at times and unfortunately it's going to get at times bad still going forward and god knew that their performance would never be perfect But the position of the covenant of God's love and blessing was such that their sin, even as bad as it got, would never weary and exhaust God's mercy and God's grace continually being toward them in such a way. And it would not disrupt or destroy God's covenant with them. God is patient and God would continue to endure with the nation of Israel and he wouldn't forsake them. That's why he's saying there contextually, verse 21, the Lord is God is with him and and He says the shout of a king, the king of kings, is among them. Again, God hadn't abandoned them. And would you agree? There were plenty of times when by this point God could have said, you know what, I think I'm going to go start up with another nation. I think there's just been too many faults and mistakes and complaints, but yet God's enduring love, his covenant of mercy with them, they couldn't exhaust God's patience and exhaust God's mercy. And as I look at that reality with the nation of Israel... That's really consoling to me to realize that we can't wear out God's patience and God's mercy as quick as we often think we can. And often that's what the devil would want us to believe. Oh, well, we've failed just one too many times, or we've sinned just a little bit too far, and that's a you yeah, you have exhausted God's mercy, and God's departed from you, and he's not among you anymore, and he's not working in your life, and here this message coming from the Lord the Lord was with them they were a a, a flawed people by all means they were not perfect in their performance they had sinned many a times there was much iniquity and idolatry but yet the shout of a king was still among them God brought them out of Egypt and it strengthened them like a wild ox in verse 23 he says for there is again beautiful terms no sorcery against Jacob nor any divination against Israel In fact, he says, it must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. So look at that. God says, look, it does not matter how hard you try and curse them, what kind of witchcraft or sorcery or divination of any kind of spirits or channeling demons or the devil himself, God says here that his preservation, his seal, his commitment to bless and his blessing upon his people cannot be reversed by sorcery or witchcraft or divination. And again, I think that's just good to remember. It's not in any way ever possible somehow that the devil's efforts are going to somehow supersede God or he's going to find a crack and somehow be able to weasel his way in. Listen, when the hand, the preserving faithful hand of God is upon his people, it's upon his people. And may the devil oppose and attack and bring resistance and opposition? Yes. But the Bible tells us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. And the devil may hassle us and hound us and and, and even hinder us. We're going to see in Thessalonians on Sunday morning that Satan at times will hinder and will bring resistance. But how wonderful to know that, look, no weapon formed against you, the Bible says, will prosper. Not even the most evil, vile forms of satanic witchcraft and sorcery and divination. He says, in light of that, verse 23, oh, what God has done. The idea is see what God has done. I mean, mean, just think about the love of God, his kindness, his faithfulness, his commitment to bless these people and not let them be cursed. And as as that was thought of, the, the sentiment comes forth, oh, what God has done. Wow how good God is to his people. And when you think of our lives, you know, oh, what God has done. Just wow. Think of who we are. We don't deserve any of this. And yet, oh, what God has done to be so wonderful in our lives. He says, verse 24, look, a people rises like a lioness. Now, again, he's using analogy or metaphor here to speak of the strength of israel despite their enemies now they're likened israel to a lioness as he lifts himself up like a lion it shall not lie down until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of the slain so the idea there is again like a ferocious lion the king of the forest that's not overcome but typically is the one who is unable to be defeated and ultimately will succeed because of its strength he's saying look israel's not going to be defeated They will not be defeated. In fact, he says, they will continue to be victorious until they devour all their enemies. They're God's people. And even to this day still, and look, all this uh, deal with the nuclear issue with Iran and all this and that kind of stuff going on. Listen, are they God's chosen people? Absolutely. And because of that, look throughout history. And every time someone has tried to destroy, to come against, to harm and to hinder the nation of Israel, it has never succeeded ultimately for one reason, because God is with them and they're God's chosen people. And because of that, God will prosper them. God will watch over them. God will always come to their aid again because they deserve it or merit it. No, because there is choice. He's chosen them as his covenant people, and God cannot lie. God can't change, and God has a plan and a purpose for them. The world, understand, is, is in a sense, you know, it, it's geocentric, first of all, the earth, but then even more than that, it, it's, it's centered upon the epicenter of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, God's people. And God will give them the strength, like a ferocious lion, to be able to overcome against all odds, despite what comes against them, because he fights for them and with them. Verse 25, Balak, at this point, now here's this second blessing instead of a curse, and now he's really enraged. He says, then neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. In other words, he's saying, look, if you can't say something bad, just don't say anything at all then. (laughs) You know, if if you can't say something negative, then don't even talk. I mean, it's just totally at his wits end with this. So Balaam answered and said, did I not tell you that all the Lord speaks that I must do? And Balaam said, or Balak said to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place. Again, he's, he's, he's pretty consistent here with this uh, sort of drive to make this happen. Perhaps shows you his crazy reasoning. Perhaps it will please God that you curse them from me for there. Maybe God, okay, maybe God is just more pleased if you curse them from this particular location. So now Balak took Balaam up onto the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Now we're gonna see a little bit more about the area of Peor. Peor is the area that was the center of Baal worship. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 25, but that's where you get Baal of Peor. So he says, let's go to this area. Maybe there's some partnership that God has with Baal or something. Maybe that would be the thing that would please God to curse them. Then Balaam said to Balak, okay, well, again, build the seven altars, prepare the bulls and the rams, and Balak did just as before and offered them on every altar. Chapter 24, now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, so he's catching on now. Okay, you see, it's pretty obvious that what pleases God is not to curse them. It pleases God to bless his people. It pleases God to bless Israel. And you know, what a wonderful thing that that's the kind of God that we serve, that the God of Israel is our God too. Look, what a wonderful thing to remind ourselves of because we struggle sometimes with sometimes embracing and believing. I know I do anyway, the goodness of God. Do you see those words? It pleases God to bless you. God doesn't just throw a blessing your way every once in a while, maybe if you've been a good boy or a good world. It, God is a father. And because God's a benevolent, good, gracious, wonderful father with all resources and all power, it actually pleases God. God wants to bless your life. God wants to bless our lives. It actually gives him pleasure to bless. Pleasure to bless our lives. He actually delights. It pleased the Lord to bless Israel. And Balaam began to see this. Wow, God loves these people. And because he loves them, he's committed to them, he's pleased to bless them. So therefore, he didn't go as at other times to seek to use sorcery. He realized he's busted. This sorcery stuff is a, is a farce. This is, this is a waste. God's authority is too strong. Yahweh God will just overrule. He he realizes now God's power and authority, and he set his face toward the wilderness. He's thinking, I'm not even going to try the sorcery thing this time. This is just worthless. So verse 2, Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel camped according to their tribes. And again, remember we talked about geographically, the way they were camped, if you looked at them from above, was in the shape of what? A cross. So very interesting, as he looks upon them now, sees their camp in the shape of the cross. Look at this verse 2, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now here again, pagan man, unbeliever, but the Spirit of God comes upon him. And now the anointing of God's power comes upon him. The Holy Spirit just overrules because there is more that God wants to say. So now God shows his amazing authority and power. And God says, look, I don't even need someone who's yielded to me to speak what I want to say. If I want to say something, I'm going to say it, God says. So the Spirit of God just comes upon him as he looks upon the... the, the, the nation of israel there and beautiful in in the as he looks upon the cross the spirit of god if you would just comes upon him in power and realize now god can use anyone to speak what he wants to say So God now gives this third oracle, and this third oracle speaks, we'll see, of God's intention to be gracious and to use and to prosper Israel. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, verse 3, the utterance of a man whose eyes are now opened. He realizes the power of God doesn't mean that he's serving God, which is quite sad and tragic after all he sees. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. ...who falls down with eyes wide open, which seems to indicate that God now opens his eyes to the the spiritual realm. That's what a vision is. It's like your eyes are are wide open. It's a dream while being awake, in a sense. God opens his eyes to the realm of the spirit. He now sees the vision of God as God shows him things in the realm of the spirit. And he says, verse 5, "...how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel." Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside. Again, these are metaphors of of prosperity and fruitfulness. Gardens by a riverside would be very fertile and and would be productive. Like aloes planted by the Lord that spoke of healing. Healing like cedars beside the waters, great stability and strength. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. The idea is spreading around, uh, moving to all other areas. His king shall be higher than Agag, who is the king of the Amalekites and his kingdom shall be exalted. So again, speaking of something future, yet still, uh, they didn't even have a king yet, Uh, but yet God already seeing their future and how he intended to be gracious, to use and prosper this chosen nation. Ultimately, they would have King David and Solomon who would expand the territories of Israel uh, and cause them to be like a fertile garden and like healing to the nations and strong and stable like cedars as God poured out his blessing upon them and their seeds scattered and took more territory. The kingdom would be exalted among Israel. Verse 8, and God brings him out of Egypt. Again, he says, his strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies, break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. Great conquest would come through Israel, especially in David's reign. He bows down and lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. Verse 9, blessed is he who blesses you, God says of Israel, and cursed is he who curses you. Again, coming forth, reiterating what God said back in Genesis, what? 12, to Abraham, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And and God has always upheld that, and again, God will always uphold that. Whenever people choose to get on the wrong side of Israel, they get on the wrong side of God. And that never is a good thing. Look at it historically with Egypt. Look at it with Assyria. Look at it with Babylon. Look at it with Nazi Germany. And watch it unfold because God doesn't change. God never changes. The wise thing to do is to get on the right side of Israel, to bless Israel. And God says, if you bless Israel, then you'll inherit and experience my blessing. But cursed is anyone who would curse the nation of Israel. Again, God's intention was to be gracious, to use and prosper his people as a nation. As he has, I mean, they have been a prolific people, a people who went without a homeland for hundreds of centuries, and a sociological miracle retained their national identity and ultimately regained their land in 1948 and have blessed uh, many nations, have brought healing and help to many nations. You know, statistically, I thought this was quite interesting. The nation of Israel, small as a population as they are, 23% of all the Nobel Peace Prizes have gone to a Jew. That's phenomenal. If you consider the population size of the nation of Israel to the 7 billion people that are on this planet and one quarter of the Nobel Peace Prizes have gone to a Jew because God's hand is upon them. God's intention to use them to be a people who are productive and who are planted like healing aloes that bring blessing to other nations. Verse 10, Balak's anger was aroused now this third time against him and he struck his hands together and Balak said, I called you to curse my enemies. Look, you bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, he says, flee to your place. He says, get out of here. I'm just so angry at him now. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. So he says, you know what? I said I would honor you, but yet you had to go and let God be in charge. And because of that, you've now forsaken blessing in your life. You know, Isn't that exactly like the voice of the enemy? You do what God asks you to do, and and the voice of the enemy says, you know what? Well, now because you did that, you just ruined your life. That is such a lie of the devil coming from King Balak right there, he says there. (laughs) Look, I would have honored you. You would have been honored and blessed, but now because you chose to do that, he says, the Lord has kept you back from honor. God's kept you back from blessing. You've ruined your life. You gave up the promotion. You missed the opportunity because you had to try and honor God. You had to try and honor God. And now God has has kept you from being blessed. Look, don't ever buy that. That's a lie. That's a total lie from the pit of hell. And yet this is what's conveyed now, again, in the anger of the moment. He says, God's kept you back from all this wealth. If Balak, he says, verse 13, were to give me, he said, I said, all the silver and gold beyond. I couldn't say anything beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad. But what Yahweh says, I must speak. And now, indeed, he sort of pipes up back at him. He says, he says, I am going to go to my people. He says, come. But before I leave, I got one more thing to say to you. (laughs) So he realizes now, I got one more thing to convey to you. And he says, I want to tell you what is going to happen to your people in the latter days. So he took up now this fourth oracle, which we'll see is about God's future purposes and plans. Let's wrap up this chapter here quickly before we close. It says, the utterance of Balaam, again, the son of Beor." A reiterance again from the last oracle, the one who hears the words of God and has knowledge of the Most High and sees the vision. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Let me just read the remainder of it. And we'll focus on those verses and Edom shall be a possession seer and his enemy shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly out of Jacob. One shall have dominion. The idea is rulership over the nations and destroy the remains of the city. So one will come and rule over the nations. And he looked on Amalek and took up an oracle then against them and said, Amalek was the first among the nations. The idea is the first to attack israel exodus 17 shows us that but he shall be last the idea is the last of their enemies to go but ultimately he'll be the last enemy god will still deliver uh, and give them over and he looked upon the kenites and took up his oracle and said firm is your dwelling place your nest is in the rock nevertheless cain shall be burned how long until asher which is a name for assyria will carry you away captive carrying the kenites away And then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coasts of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. And Balaam then arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak went his way. So he now speaks this fourth oracle, again, another blessing, speaking now of future things, how Israel ultimately, not just in the time historically ahead but all the way out to the future time of christ and beyond that when one will come and rule and reign and overcome all the nations and rule of dominion over all the nations but look at verse 17 again in the midst of this here now even from this enigma this false prophet becomes a prophecy god uses to speak about christ he says i shall see him I shall behold him, but not near. That is not close, somewhat far off down the road. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star out of Jacob. A star was a term often used to refer to those in royalty. And ultimately in the New Testament, Jesus in Revelation 22 refers to himself as the bright and morning star. He says a scepter shall rise out out of among out of the people of Israel, the the scepter in that day always spoke of rulership. It always spoke of of the ability to reign and again genesis forty nine there was a prophecy there that said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. a prophecy of of Christ speaking of his kingship and his rulership. But here, in the midst of this, look at this how God even uses in this moment the opportunity to what lift up Christ amidst the most wicked efforts of mankind. And he points to Christ. Interesting. A star shall come out of Jacob. Where ultimately was Balaam from the East? Remember, remember Matthew chapter two, as it speaks of the Magi. And it says that when they came, Matthew two, two says the Magi came saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we seen his star in the East. And we've come to worship him. Interesting. Could be a clue. How did those magi know when they just saw a star in the east that that meant the Messiah, the king of kings, the Christos, the savior was born and they came following a star from the east? Well, it could be through the midst of these chaotic circumstances that through this prophecy word traveled back when Balaam went back home. And this prophecy circulated over hundreds of years, and it was known among the people that, hey, when the Messiah comes, there will be a star connected to it, and that this could be some connection to how that happened. I say all that to say this. Amazing how God uses all things. God uses all things. Absolutely everything. Proverbs twenty-one thirty says this. I want you to meditate upon this as we go back into worship tonight. It says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Nothing that can ultimately go against the Lord. Ephesians 1 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, we live in a wicked world. We have an evil enemy. That can do a lot of rotten, horrible, hurtful, horrific, tragic things to bring pain and problems into our lives. But God says there's no wisdom, no counsel, nothing, no understanding of man, no weapon form that will ultimately overcome the perfect plan of God. Somehow, even all that, it will be channeled and contribute to the perfect will of God to bring his blessing and his best. God will use even that to work together for your good, to bless your life and to bring things together for his will and plan for you. What a great encouragement. Let's stand, let's pray as we think upon that, as we give worship to the Lord.